Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Good morning, everybody. Yes, this is Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I know some of you are surprised to hear me here at uh, six minutes after nine. Guess what? I'm a little surprised to hear myself here, too. Um, But we're making a change in the GPB radio schedule, largely because um, we recognize that politics is going to be such a huge story. It already is. It will be through the November elections. And so Political Rewind will be coming to you at 9 o'clock in the morning. During the impeachment trial, we'll be on the air only at 9 a.m., uh, because uh, we'll be carrying the NPR coverage of the impeachment in the afternoon and evening. When the trial ends, you're going to have two opportunities every day to listen to Political Rewind, the 9 a.m. show and then at 2 in the afternoon. Um, the only reason we're able to do this is out of the goodness of her heart, Virginia Prescott, <laughs> the extraordinary host of On Second Thought, who's in the studio with me right now, Virginia uh, you're a you're a you're a really wonderful person to say yes. Politics matters. Take the time in the morning. Thank you for that. Well, thanks for the kind words. But you know we are public radio and we're responding to the public. We've got the impeachment trial, of course, in the Senate, the budget and legislation churning through the General Assembly, and of course, election 2020. Yeah. I guess is big news. So it feels more relevant in many ways for people to begin their day talking about and discussing these. It's what is on top of mind. So I'm glad there's an opportunity to talk um, about that. On, because On Second Thought is such a wonderful show, and there's such devoted fans out there. Tell everybody how they're going to be able to listen to On Second Thought from now on. All right. So we, because we cannot live by politics alone, we do have On Second Thought moving <laughs> to Friday mornings at 11. So that's after the weekly news roundup on 1A. And then we'll be on Saturday mornings at 7 and continue to air Sundays at 11. Of course, you can listen online or download the podcast on Second Thought at GBB's website, which is going to give me a little more time to develop some projects and to do events in the community. You and I, we should tell people, I I think, from my point of view, have had a terrific working relationship. It's been such a joy to have you here for the last year plus now. Um, And we've agreed that um, we're going to talk about opportunities for us to say co-host a Political Rewind when we have special topics that are of interest to both of us. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. One of the things I love listening to is your interviews, you know, your long-form interviews. Although just sitting around this table and hearing all the chatter before we go on the air, this is the big kids' table as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) Yeah, we'll introduce today's panel in just a minute. Uh, You have a big interview coming up tonight. Yes. Steve Inskeep, he is the host of NPR's Morning Edition, a beloved host. He's written a book. This is his third book, actually. It's called Imperfect Union, How Jesse and John Fremont Mapped the West, Invented Celebrity, and Helped Cause the Civil War. It really is a fascinating book. In the the 1840s, John Fremont started going on these expeditions to try and give a route down out to the West, of course, to stretch the empire from sea to shining sea. And his guides became sort of travel guides for the hundreds of thousands of people who moved West. And his Old tales of daring do in the newspapers were thanks to his wife, Jessie Benton Fremont, a senator's daughter, confined by the limits of her day, but an aggressive promoter of her husband's image as an explorer. She was called by one critic, the better man of the two. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, uh, John Fremont, candidate for president. We right. talk about, you know, it's interesting to be talking about Fremont just briefly this morning, because when we talk about how contentious the times are that we're living in, how contentious this presidential election is going to be, John Fremont lived through an unbelievably contentious presidential campaign. Absolutely. He was became the first presidential candidate of, of the re- newly formed Republican Party in 1856. And of course, you know, expansion challenged the parody of slave state versus free state, a huge driver of political politics then. And there was also during his time a growing nativist movement and of course the abolitionist movement and he was an interesting character not a not an unflawed hero i have to say yeah. he worked with parties of french and german immigrants native american nations mexicans uh, a free slave was one of his primary 
cohorts and benefited from this cross-section of the American experience, but exploited the anti-immigrant sentiment when it was politically expedient. All of this is why I'm looking forward to times when we can do the show together. Uh, again, tonight you're doing this recording at? The Carter Center, at, and 7 o'clock. are there tickets still available? It's a free event. Oh, it's a free event, It's a free event, but people can reserve a book and a seat. And, and you know, Bill, just for the future, you know, if you need anyone to talk election 1856, I'm your guy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> when you get tired of election 2020. Virginia, Virginia Prescott, host of On Second Thought, which will now be on the air Fridays at 11, Saturdays at 7 a.m. and Sunday at, at 11. 11. Virginia, thank you. I have to say I envy you the opportunity to get away from talking about politics all the time, but I'll soldier on as best I can. <laughs> Thanks, Virginia. Enjoy this seat at 9 a.m. Yeah, all right. Thank Let's you. take a quick break, and we'll start Political Rewind in just a couple of minutes with a great panel for today. GPB's vehicle donation program provides an easy, convenient way to support public radio for you and your community. We'll even pick up that car, truck, or SUV you've been wanting to get rid of for free. Give us a call, 877-GPB-1-CAR, or go to gpb.org cars. We truly appreciate supporters like you, and thanks. Support for GPB comes from you, our listeners, and the University of Georgia's Master of Social Work online program providing flexibility for adult professionals seeking to advance their career in the field of social work. More information at online.uga.edu msw. And MD Anderson Proton Therapy Center, precisely targeting head and neck tumors to reduce the chance of loss of taste, malnutrition, and feeding tube dependency. More at mdandersonprotontherapy.com. All right, we have a lot to talk about on Political Rewind today. Um, we've got three great panelists in the studio, but let me start with a woman who is in the middle of all the action that is going to start uh, this afternoon, Tia Mitchell. The AJC's Washington correspondent is uh, with us from Washington, D.C. So are you all excited, Tia? Um, I am excited. You know, it's going to be long hours, it looks like, but it's going to be history and to be able to witness it, I'm, I am excited. Well, and, and we really appreciate, given how busy your day and night are going to get, that you took time to be with us uh, this morning. Here in the studio, Amy Steigerwald, professor of political science at Georgia State University, uh, joins us. Glad to have you here this morning, Amy. Thanks for having me. Buddy Darden is sitting right next to you, former Democratic congressman from the 7th District, which was mostly South the south border of Cobb County all the way up to the Tennessee line in those days. Hi, buddy. We haven't seen you in too long. I'm so glad to be back. The old district, by the way, ran from the Chattahoochee River to the Chattanooga city limits, but I'm glad to be back by popular demand. <laughs> it, is, it is by popular demand. No question about that. And Edward Lindsay, another favorite of this show, former Republican member of the Georgia State House. He represented Atlanta. Now, Practicing law as part of the world's biggest law firm. Yes, indeed. Yeah, and, and you love to bring that out every I, week. I, and... I, look, I mean, if you guys have my the cl- best. My clients love to hear it. Well, you have a great. I mean, one of the reasons Denton's is on the show so often is that you have such. No firm, I don't think, has collected so many really outstanding political leaders or past leaders, failed leaders, as <laughs> the case may be, but still smart analysts. Um, all right, let's go to work. Uh, Let's start. We know, of course, the impeachment trial is going to start or continue, really, at one o'clock this afternoon. GPB will bring it to you on the radio side, NPR's coverage, and it's expected to go until late into the night. Tia, let's just start by uh, talking about just the beginnings of the trial. There's a lot of pushback going on among Democrats, but a lot of cheering by Republicans that Mitch McConnell is setting a schedule that will um, keep uh, senators in their seats 12 hours today, 12 hours tomorrow. Each side will get uh, 24 hours to make their case, but they're going to have to do it in 12-hour chunks from 1 p.m. to 1 a.m., and that'll take place over the next few days. Why is there controversy over that, Tia? Yes, the controversy is 
it is expedited timeline when you compare it to the Clinton impeachment because of that two-day restriction. Um, and if you remember, you know, they can't just go 12 hours straight because they have to stop and, and, and get dinner or stop and let senators go to the bathroom because you can't just get up and leave when you want during this. So that means it can go and likely will go if each side wants to use their full 24 hours well past 1 a.m. to perhaps as late as 3 a.m. Yeah. And so, you know, there's a lot of concern, mainly by Democrats, that what he's trying to do is, you know, assume or or is hoping that the sides won't use the complete 24 hours, because that is a lot to pack into two days. Buddy Darden, why are Democrats uh, concerned about that kind of schedule? Well, first of all, the outcome already is determined. We, we know that. There's no doubt that, that uh, the president will not be removed by the Senate. But the important thing is how it looks and how the American people see it and how they visualize it. And I think that the Republicans may be overplaying their hand a little bit here because they're going to win anyway. So why not why not uh, give a little bit and make it look a little better? And I think I think they might be missing an opportunity to make it look a little better here because there's no doubt about how it's going to come out. So at least make it give it some semblance of fairness and they apparently are letting the White House make the decisions here, not the Senate itself, and that can be dangerous. Edward? Well, I kind of wonder whether there's some crocodile tears being being uh, spent on this because I can think of four Democratic senators in particular who are probably not too upset by the expedited level. Four candidates for president. And that's uh, Senators <laughs> Warren, Sanders, Klobuchar, and Bennett, yeah. uh, who very much need to get back to Iowa uh, in order to campaign for that uh in that uh, race, uh, what is it, two weeks from away from now. So my guess is those four in particular aren't crying too much about the expedited calendar. Amy, uh, it's, Buddy, it makes an interesting point, uh, overplaying your hand on this. Um, Americans, we have very split feelings about whether the president should be impeached or not impeached nationally. And in a few minutes, we'll talk about the figures that the AJC has here in Georgia. Um but does Buddy make a point when he says that there are going to be people out there, given the outcome is already pretty certain, who are going to take seriously the question of whether this the Republicans have strong-armed uh, the uh, managers, of the Democratic managers, and, and pushed for a conclusion here that favors them? And are they being short-sighted? So I think one of the things that I have been most interested in watching all of this, especially as a political scientist who studies institutions, has been somewhat the breakdown in institutional support and protection of Congress versus the executive. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, I think that's also what we again see playing out. I mean, if you read um, the White House's response to the briefs that they filed, there is a very strong argument in there about almost um, absolute executive power suggesting that, in fact, Congress doesn't have a role in a lot of things, including perhaps the impeachment, suggesting that uh, determinations by Congress could itself be unconstitutional. And I think that sort of plays into this where there's an interesting concern also more broadly about Congress wanting to show that it's taking its role in this procedure seriously so that it can continue into the future. And I think that that may affect it. I think the other thing that could be a little bit concerning, I would say, for the Republicans in making the argument is that they have up till now made a lot of arguments that they should follow the Clinton impeachment guidelines. And what is interesting is where they've made some really significant departures from that. One is the shortened time frame. Um, a second one, which most people may not sort of recognize, is that instead of accepting the evidence that the House is transmitting to the Senate automatically, that can only be done upon a vote that comes after the arguments and after the debate on the motions. And that one is because it does suggest that they could that information may not actually be accepted, which I think, again, could be problematic. I, yeah, I, I mean, it, all of this does seem to suggest that I mean, that it, in the long run, the audience is the American people here. And 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 what they're starting to, I think, 
uh, have reason to wonder about is where McConnell is headed with the fair trial that he's said will be much along the Clinton lines. Well, Bill, as you know, I was an intern under Richard B. Russell many years ago, back in the early 1960s. And at that time, the Senate was supreme. In fact, the president, President Kennedy at the time, and then uh, President Johnson, they walked in fear of the Senate. And the Senate didn't take orders from anybody. In fact, you've probably read the book about Johnson, one of Carroll's books, in which then-Vice President Johnson wanted to meet with the Senate caucus and discuss issues with them and become a part of the caucus, and they expelled him. No way. They Uh, said, no way. Uh, Tia, let's turn to some Georgians who are going to play a role in all of this, particularly Doug Collins, we learned, uh, based on something you filed uh, very early this morning or yesterday, Doug Collins is now going to be included in the team of managers on the prosecution side, but it's not quite clear what his role is going to be. Have I got that right? Yes, he's, um, and it's really kind of what the White House did about 8 o'clock last night is they put out a press release naming eight House Republicans as joining the team, but it really just codified, solidified what they were already doing, which is um, going to the White House, discussing strategy, um, serving as advisors to those attorneys who will serve as Trump's defense attorneys during the trial. Representative Collins has already, you know, been talking about his role as a White House advisor. Um, And this also just kind of solidifies that he and these other House Republicans, what it empowers them to do is kind of speak a little bit more officially when they're on Fox News, when they're writing uh, the op-ed for the newspapers as, you know, I'm not just defender, I'm part of the part team. of the team. Yeah, that makes sense, Edward. Well, a couple of points. Uh, number one, I, uh, and I agree with Amy. I, I did find it interesting that they have to vote now to decide whether or not to accept everything that was in the House. But two two points on that. Number one is that actually the senators and not the and not the chief justice are the determinants as to what it goes into evidence and doesn't. So that's that part is not too surprising. Number two, and Buddy and I have been trial lawyers. Uh, you you can't unring the bell. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that evidence is already out to the general public, and whether or not uh, somehow the senators uh, were not to accept it into their record is is somewhat irrelevant because th- th- that's already out there. The third thing I want to point out, is, and, and Buddy's absolutely right in terms of maintaining that separation of powers, but there is an excellent article in Politico, I believe, yesterday that did talk about you know this this idea of this total arms length uh, transaction between uh, the Senate and the Clinton impeachment wasn't quite right. I mean, uh, Daschle's staff and the White House staff did uh, correspond closely. Yes, but they had was 100 to zero approval of the rules. But, but, but my <laughs> point, my point is that there was a lot of yeah. uh, of uh, of going back and forth. And matter of fact, there was even a code as to when uh, the the president wanted to make sure that a certain question got asked a certain yeah. way that he could do so. So that you know, the, there there was right. some behind Talk the scenes going on. The, then. What too. about okay? So throw it out to all of you, Amy. What about Doug Collins? I mean. President Trump has shown time and time again, Collins, as Tia points out, is just one of the House mm-hmm. uh, defenders of the president. It'll be part of this defense of the prosecute of the defense team uh, without really having a specific role in the trial itself. Jim Jordan and others. Um, but this also, you know, raises more questions, I think, about whether the president, by elevating somebody like Collins, is also quietly helping him move toward whether he's going to get into the Senate race? Perhaps. I mean, the president made very clear that Doug Collins was his choice for um, the, to be appointed for the remainder of Johnny Isaacson's term um, and certainly sent out, right, also surrogates to try to reinforce that. And so I think that does come up. Um, I think more broadly, it is sort of a signal that uh, definitely the Trump administration, perhaps uh, the Republican Party more broadly, sees Doug Collins as a rising national figure and someone to be supported and elevated. Yeah. Um, similarly, yeah. with the others that have been in there. Yeah. I think Elise Stefanik is an, an she interesting is in one there, also. And they're that's very high under. Yeah, even as I said that, yeah. buddy, I started to wonder if I got that wrong. Well, of course, he's throwing Doug Collins a bone, and I think it's good to give him an opportunity to stay 
keep his name out there. But the one that mystifies me is why in the world do they want to bring Ken Starr on board. <laughs> I mean, that just brings out the worst of the Clinton era, as well as people wondering, what in the world is he doing there? Well, there's well, also a lot of Me Too questions about Ken Starr. I mean, well, and Alan Dershowitz. But yeah. the other part yeah. that's really actually fascinating, which I think goes more to this, is that the people who signed all the briefs that have been submitted so far are not the ones that supposedly are the legal team arguing in the Senate chamber. And that is really fascinating. Like Dershowitz and Starr are not on any right. of those briefs. Yeah. Um, who is, which is an interesting question that I haven't been able to research enough, is the White House counsel, which, who a lot of times is not supposed to be involved because this is the president in his personal capacity. Yeah, Tia, I think. But, but, but I believe I, he was involved in the Clinton one as well. Oh, was he? Okay. Yeah. But, but I, I may uh, be wrong. Tia Cipollone is going to be one of the defenders of the president. And there is a question, Amy mentions it, of whether or not the White House counsel really represents the institution, the White House as an institution, yeah. or the person occupying the office. Clearly, Cipollone is uh, representing the person who occupies the office in this case. Now, he would probably argue, yes, but in terms of executive privilege and that sort of thing, I'm simultaneously defending the office. Tia? Yeah, yeah I think it's we have to remember that a big part of Trump's case against impeachment is saying that the the articles themselves, the charges themselves, are invalid and mm -hmm. unconstitutional. So even before they get to arguing whether Trump's actions were or were not proper, they're trying to, on the face, say this whole thing should be thrown out. Just on its face, it's wrong to even go down this path. And I think that's where, you know, those the constitutional law experts in the White House Council are kind of hoping it doesn't even get to digging too deep into what the president did or did not do, say or did not say. Um, let me let me do this. Uh, Edward, mm -hmm. you want to make a quick point? Because I want to play David Perdue. Just a quick Perdue. point. That, that is also why Alan Dershowitz is there, is, yeah. is that he he is going to be arguing that absent a crime, uh, there mm -hmm. is no uh, impeachable offense. Buddy, let me play for you uh, an excerpt, just a couple, about a minute, of uh, David Perdue's appearance. He represented the Republicans yesterday on Meet the Press. Chuck Todd, uh, as he often does, grilled him fairly closely. Let's just listen to a bit of their exchange with anybody. I'd love you to start the response to it. Why not have the United States Senate put this man under oath and hear what he has to say? Again, secondhand information, this is a distraction. This is a, a person that's been indicted right now. He's out on bail. He's been meeting with the House Intel Committee. If the House felt like this information was pertinent, I would think they would have included him in this, uh, in his testimony in this uh How is it secondhand? He, he was in Ukraine. He was doing the bidding. He's he wasn't got, on the He's got he material. On. He's got, he seems to have some material evidence that might be helpful in, in connecting some dots. Well, that's the deal he's trying to make to get his sentence reduced. I'm not sure he does at all, personally. Well, let's put this in perspective, Chuck. The headlines of the Washington Post on the day President Trump was inaugurated said that the campaign to impeach this president has already begun. This is an impeachment looking for reasons. They want to undo the 2016 election and, in fact, the 2020 election, I believe. So I, I really think that what happened in the House was not a fair trial. It's illegitimate because of that. They denied due process to the president. We're going to try now to have a fair trial in the, in the Senate. All right. I, I should have set that up. Uh, that he's talking first, of course, about Lev Parnas, who has basically turned against the president, gave an extended interview to Rachel Maddow, has turned over all of his uh, documents to the uh, House uh, to uh, make the point of how involved the president really was in all of this Ukraine business. But uh, beyond that, buddy, you heard David Perdue continuing the defense of the president, why this impeachment is illegitimate. Yes, I did. And if that's ever been a personification of a sycophant for President President Trump is, is David Perdue. I think they need to find themselves a little more able spokesman, frankly, uh, when they when they make the case and somebody who can match wits with Chuck Todd. You know, I've been in this world for 76 years now, and uh, in my lifetime, I've never seen a more weak and ineffectual 
uh, less influential group of senators from Georgia than what we have now. So maybe things will get better. Well, well with the with, with, with the fifty one percent approval rating in Georgia, uh, right? David Perdue has a, a he has a pretty strong approval rating. Let's keep that in mind. Um, let me, uh, Tia. We've just got Tom Faust just forwarded to me breaking news. Uh, CNN is reporting that the House managers, this is apropos of our conversation, have called White House counsel Cipollone a, quote, fact witness, and they're demanding he disclose all firsthand knowledge. Well, Amy, so, I mean, that has been in the, in the air. Cipollone is close to the president. He's been involved in many of the decisions, we assume, that went on over Ukraine and other matters. So now the House is sort of calling him out and saying, you can't defend the president without disclosing the ways in which you may have been involved in some of the decisions around Ukraine. So the place where this really comes up is partly on Ukraine and also on the obstruction of justice charge. So there was um, a letter that was sent um, on October 8th to the House of Representatives, which said that under direction of the White House counsel, basically anyone who was subpoenaed, they were going to fight that. They were instructing people not to comply. And given that that is one of the charges in the second article, it is fairly relevant of where that uh, statutory and sort of constitutional authority came from and where that comes in. And the fact that he was the one who authored that opinion was to many people sort of a surprise as it was. But Tia, that's going to, I mean, as there are many things that Democrats try to do in this Senate trial, that's going to be a losing argument, isn't it? Yeah, I think think it's going to be hard for some of those insidery witnesses. Also, uh, you at both ends of that list, it's going to be hard for the Senate Republicans to go along with calling those people that we know President Trump does not want to testify. But what it gets at is this central disagreement about having witnesses at all. And that's, again, a difference with the Clinton impeachment is the witnesses kind of came with the trial. You know, they already had depositions and witness testimony that was part of the documentation that started the trial off. And we don't have that here. And that's just going to be a central disagreement um, until the trial concludes, most likely. An interesting perhaps discussion here would be the likelihood of different witnesses and different documents coming Mm -hmm. in. Uh, my guess, like I said, since you can't unring ring the bell, uh, whatever was produced in the House is going to come in one way or the other. And then you start going down the line. You know, how likely it is for John Bolton to be in there? How likely it is for Hunter Biden to be in there? How likely it is for Joe Biden and the White House staff and this uh, this gentleman who worked with Do you Mr. think there's a, ro- a place for a Hunter Biden or a Joe Biden to testify, Edward? You're I, a Republican. Many of the Republicans I argue think, there is. I think if, if, if John Bolton comes in, and I think there's a fair chance that John Bolton may very well come in, I think that there would probably be a compromise in which uh, certain Republican senators who who are prepared to hear some evidence say, OK, we'll, we'll, we want to hear from John Bolton, uh, but we also want to hear from Hunter Biden. Uh, underneath the the simple fact that that the allegation is that the president uh, pushed for this investigation for purely political reasons. But let's hear from the young man uh, that was at the center of this push for an investigation in the Ukraine. Let's see if there's any substance to it. So I could easily see as part of a grand compromise between the House and between the Senate uh, Republicans and Democrats going, you get Bolton, we get we get uh, Hunter Biden. Yes, but isn't that an effort to call the Democrats bluff on witnesses, buddy? Well, this is just great theater. This seems like to me an old Perry Mason episode <laughs> where, where Perry Mason knows his client is guilty and has seen his client uh, commit the act. But at the same time, he's defending him at the same time. Wait a minute. So Perry Mason just, never Perry had Mason a guilty never, client. Never had a guilty client. <laughs> never had a guilty client. You got that wrong. I'm sorry, uh, Congressman. <laughs> Let's do this. Let's get a break out of the way. When we come back, we've got some great numbers from an AJC poll. Tia, I'd love to have you help walk us through them and uh, let the panel discuss what they show about impeachment, what they show about favorability of candidates for the Senate, uh, the governor, the president, we'll, all, we'll do all that after this message. Work on the 2020 census is about to get underway in Alaska. And for the first time, it'll rely on the Internet as the primary means to get us counted 
as mandated by the Constitution. Meanwhile, the specter of questions over U.S. citizenship still hover over the 2020 census. The facts from 2020 Census Director Stephen Dillingham. That's next time on 1A. Listen this morning at 10 here on GPB Radio. Support for GPB programs comes from our listeners. And the Harry Jacobs Chamber Music Society at Augusta University, presenting the Minget Quartet with guest pianist Andreas Klein, Tuesday, January 28th at Maxwell Theater. Tickets and more information at augusta.edu slash harryjacobs. And Georgia Cares, the state health insurance assistance program. Medicare wellness services can help with disease prevention and early detection of illness. Information about Medicare screenings is available at mygeorgiacares.org. Welcome back uh, to Political Rewind. Well, I guess that's where... Look at that. We've already got... This discussion will not stop during the breaks. I try to control this room. I obviously cannot do it. I'll try better. (laughs) Welcome back to Political Rewinds. Amy Steigerwald, Edward Lindsay, Buddy Darden here in the studio, Tia Mitchell at her post in Washington. Of course, she's the Washington reporter for the AJC. Um... Tia, let's talk a little bit about the uh, poll that uh, you've commissioned from University of Georgia. Uh, let's just talk about the impeachment aspects of it first. While national polling shows a fairly clear um, split, well, I guess we should say the AJC poll is split as well. So let me just talk about that. Uh, based on what you know, do you think President Trump has committed an impeachable offense? 45% say yes. Uh, 50% say no. If you ask what should happen to President Trump at the end of the impeachment process, assuming, uh, you know, how the evidence goes, only 38% say he should be removed for, from, from office, while uh, 58%, and this is significant, say no. His fate should be determined in the 2020 elections. Weigh in on that for us, Tia. Yes, it it goes to the core of, you know, this discussion about just because Trump is unpopular, just because people, voters in Georgia in particular, we're talking about Georgia, this is not like a national poll, but in Georgia, voters are saying, even if we're uncomfortable with the things he's he's done and think he's done improper things, we don't necessarily agree with the Senate removing him from office. Let the voters decide. And I think that goes with, you know, that's kind of the conservative way to say, you know, leave it up to voters. Don't let bureaucrats decide who's going to represent us. But I also think there's this general uneasiness with, you know, there are certain voters who say, yeah, he's done some bad things, but I still think the guy should be president. And we can't ignore that that really is a narrative that we're hearing from voters. Uh, The question, buddy, of whether the voters should decide his fate or whether the Senate should is at the core of an awful lot of this. Um, we know that the Senate is unlikely to actually convict him. Nevertheless, again, it's the American people who are the real jury in this. True, but the outcome in the Senate is a foregone conclusion. So what we're right. look, looking at is how this is going to look and what the people are going to hear. And I think the, how this comes out might affect the outcome of well, the election yeah, that, one exact, way or exactly. another. Yeah. Ed, Edward, with that in mind, uh, the AJC poll asked, uh, thinking about the 2020 election, do you definitely plan to vote for Donald Trump or do you definitely plan to vote against him? 44% of Georgians say they will vote for him. 47% say they'll vote against him. Uh, 8% say they just don't know. Uh, that's pretty much within the margin of error or pretty close to it. Yeah, there were a number of anomalies in this poll. I mean, you had, uh, what, 47% saying they're definitely going to vote for him while I'm a, no. Well, while a majority said definitely going to vote against him, 44-47, rather. Right. And then, however, you had an, at another place in the poll, his favorability rating was 51%. No, it, it's um, his favorability, as I, I look at these numbers, is 47 unfavorable, 50. But go ahead. But I thought I thought 51, uh, Tia, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, I thought it was 51% approval. approval oh, okay. Approval that's right. Was 51%. Thank you. So, Thank you. So there's some anomalies, and, and, and they all play within that margin of error that you talked about. But this also, a lot of this gets back to when it comes to how many folks think he should be removed from office. While we got to talk about a 19th century American with Fremont, let's talk about an 18th century American, Alexander Hamilton, who talked about uh, whether 
whether impeachment ought to involve a specific crime or should it involve a injury to the body public uh, and society as a whole. And if you are to accept Hamilton's viewpoint, which was the latter, you need a broader, I believe, a broader consensus from the general public beyond simple partisanship. And you just don't have that as of now. And that's why I think so many Americans are saying, let's let the voters decide next November. I want to I drill down on some more of these numbers. But before I do, Tia, let's you and I talk about the change in methodology. And then, Amy, given that this is an area of expertise for you, I want to get you to weigh in on it. So, Tia, the starting point here is that uh, the paper announced in releasing this data that they had changed to some extent the methodology, the way in which they weighted uh, the results of the poll. And what your editors, your polling uh, people at the paper decided is that past polls had underrepresented the number of people who were, had a high school diploma or less and over-calculated uh, 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 those who had college uh, uh, experience. So this has a much more, not maybe not much more, but this poll has something of a more conservative bent because of those changes, right? Yes, you will see some. And again, because we did change our methodology, it's something we started discussing at the last poll in November, um, but we weren't able to do it then. So we incorporated it for this poll. But as a result, you can't really compare our results this time to our previous polls because, again, the methodology has changed. But that is to more accurately ensure that um, our results reflect the demographics of Georgia. And waiting for education is something that came up, you know, even all the discussion about polling after the 2016 presidential election and what pollsters got right and wrong, um, that waiting for education became a big part of um, discussion. And so we wanted to make sure we reflected that. It took a little time for us to perfect our methodology, but we're happy to, um, you know, incorporate, it, incorporate that in the latest poll. And we're always looking at ways to make sure that, you know, our polling is the best it can be in partnership with the University of Georgia. A- Amy, you can look at this in two ways. You can look at the science of polling and see how mm-hmm. they did it, which I'd love for you to comment on. But then there's the larger uh, uh, issue here, which is uh, just what Tia ended with there. Um, one of the reasons President Trump shocked many people in the United States is that for, not just in polling, but in our just general comprehension of the electorate, people forgot how influential those with high school diplomas and less could be. Yes. So the issue with polling is that it's trying to, without asking every single person, ask enough people of a representative sample of those people what is going on so that we can take a snapshot of views. And the problem is that representativeness is ensuring that you're not only asking a random group of people, but that that random group of people accurately reflects what the population looks like. So if, in fact, the state, for example, in the state of Georgia, you have to ensure that you've got a fairly decent uh, mix of races in responses, right? We are not a solely white state. We have quite a large, right, we have the largest middle class black population in the country. So that needs to be reflected, right? We also need to reflect the distribution of people that live in city versus rural areas. Um, in those rural areas, as Ed and I were talking about earlier, you are going to have more people that are uh, have, have not perhaps gone on to college. And so maybe did vocational training and did other types of training, but they didn't go past high school. And so it's keeping that in. And part of that is to then reflect where those are. The issue is, is playing with those weights. And it is both, it is a science, um, but there's an art to that science of trying to make sure that you're weighting things correctly, that you're accurately reflecting, that you're not then giving too much to a particular side such that it shuts out another one. Because the problem is, is that you want to try to get the most accurate results that you can, but not have to, in fact, ask a million people that we instead can ask a thousand people. And so that's where the concerns can be. And I think that's why we also really have to pay attention um, for those that are sort of listening and I'm getting really wonky, that margin of error. Yeah. Because what that means is whatever number it says, you can act – the reality is – so if the number is 50 
If your margin of error is 4%, that means that the actual answer is somewhere in a range between 46 to 54. Right. And so we have to take that into account. And that's why some of these numbers we can have a bit more reliance on. Right. Some of them are very strong in certain areas, especially on polling about issue areas. And we should say that margin of error is most uh, determined by the number of people in the sample. Exactly. And this sample is a really healthy sample size. It's it is well a healthy over sample size. A thousand people, yeah. which is Once why the margin of error is a little bit uh, lower. Buddy? Well, as a polling skeptic, I find this very enlightening. I appreciate you bringing this to me because <laughs> I've, I've, learned, I've learned something today, and it's very helpful to me. I make two quick observations. I would respectfully say to Tia that you mentioned perfecting the sample. I think what you mean is improving the sample because I don't think you ever perfect it. And the second thing, I believe, is that a lot of people, uh, especially folks that vote uh, for Trump, aren't too proud of it and won't admit it. And uh, so you, you have this in a lot of sensitive issues, not just Trump, but on racial issues and all other things that are sensitive to people. And uh, so a lot of people just don't want to admit where they are. And I'm not saying that this is something that would necessarily skew the results totally, but I do think that's a factor, Amy. Well, Edward, sometimes it's not just a matter of whether or not they pr- they pr- they're proud of their vote or not. It's whether or not they're skeptical of the person asking the questions. And mm-hmm. so keep that in mind. We don't necessarily always need to assume it's because they're not proud of it. Sometimes they just they don't necessarily trust the person who's asking the question. So, I agree. so Edward, yes. the, the numbers uh, on the surface for the president appear pretty good uh, in Georgia, mm-hmm. uh, given that we're still 11 months away from the election, a little less than that. Um, but uh, there are some troubling signs here. Tia, you uh, filed a story we're in looking at the cross tabs in terms of African Americans who were polled by by the AJC and women. Tell us uh, why those numbers aren't as uh, uh, positive for the Republicans. Right, and let's start with you know Donald Trump made a big show in Atlanta in November of launching his African American voter outreach and saying you know he's going to be able to pull African American support away from Democrats. Because, you know, Democrats have failed them and President Trump provides hope. And it's, the polling shows that African-American voters are not buying, you know, and I'm talking about just strongly disapproved. There was um, 76 percent of the black voters polled said they strongly disapprove of the way the president is handling his job. When you include the somewhat disapprove, it goes up to 87 percent. And his... Um, you know, you talk about favorability, his favorability amongst African-Americans is even lower than that. But even among women, you know, you had over half of women, 51 percent, saying they strongly disapprove of the way President Trump is handling his job. So, you know, it goes to show you that among, you know, women voters, over half of the population, African-American voters in Georgia, a huge voting block, Trump is not doing well going into his re-election um, campaign, you know, and it, it's it's also going to, that's also troubling, I would think, for those who are running statewide down ballot, especially those U.S. Senate races. Yeah, except, so Edward, you know hey, this, yeah. the, the standard reply to uh, what T is talking about, you know, when people say George is becoming a purple state, this, the real answer to that is, no, no, Georgia is a blue state but the people who would turn it blue don't turn out to the polls. And that is a big part of all of this. Uh, well, I'm, I'm not necessarily sure I, I buy that one. But I, but I do uh, strongly believe that both parties need to work harder uh, to attract voters in those demographic areas where they're weakest. Republicans need to work awfully hard to, to bring in more Republicans. Uh, African-American voters and need to, to heal some of the differences with with certain women segments. And Democrats, but conversely, need to do much better with, with white voters and with men. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, if you go down through the favorability, not just with Trump, but looking at, at the poll that, that Tia's uh, uh, newspaper did, uh, Governor Kemp, 60 percent favorable rating. Uh, that takes an awful lot of Democrats to cross over in order to get that. Uh, Senator Perdue, 51 percent favorable rating. So down ballot beyond the president, this still is looking like a pretty good year for Republicans uh, unless the Democrats can, can start to make up some ground that they're, they're way behind on. 
All right, let me go down some other numbers and uh, ask you all to weigh in as we go. Uh, again, this is from the AJC poll of well over 1,000 uh, voters. Um, Tia, I'm sorry, I don't know what the screen is. Is this likely voters or is this just registered voters? Do you know off the top of your head? Um, I think it's likely voters, okay. but let me um, check our methodology and okay. I'll get right I, back. Thank you. Yes. Th- I'm sorry, I didn't mean to throw that at you. Um, <laughs> so... Um, David Perdue, Amy, mm-hmm. uh, 52% favorable, 30% unfavorable. Uh, that's a pretty strong number going into. That's uh, impressions. If you ask about how his, whether they, they like the job he's done or not, uh, the numbers aren't quite as strong. But, but he's going into this re-election campaign with pretty healthy numbers, isn't he? They're not too bad. I mean, I think it's good that he's above 50 percent. That certainly helps him. Um, I think where if I was him, I'd have a little bit of concern is on two places. Number one, um, it's he, he doesn't have a ton that are strongly approved. It's much more um, mm-hmm. of the people that they're somewhat approved. Yes. And there's also a pretty healthy don't know, refuse category. Yeah, 21%. Um, 21%, right? So that means there's 21% of people who are saying, I don't really know enough about him. I haven't made a judgment either way. And it means that they could, they could swing positively. They could swing negatively. And so I think you're going to see a lot of sort of focus on that, both on that group and on trying to switch the group that says I, they somewhat approved to strongly approve. Really? Interesting point. Uh, 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 let me uh, turn to you, buddy. Bill, uh, can I interject? Yeah, no, go ahead. The poll to you. Sure. is of registered voters. It is registered yes. voters. Thank. That's voters. really important, and I appreciate your finding that out because uh, we should say it's much different to do a poll of registered voters and likely voters. Registered voters, who knows whether they're going to show up at the polls or not. So that ought to refl- it, it influence a little bit how we receive these numbers, I think it's safe to say. Right, buddy? That is very enlightening again, because I've learned things here. And I do know that if you do registered voters as opposed to likely voters, uh, you really uh, have a problem with those results. Actually, I think they probably favor Republicans more than the Democrats, because the Democrats, our turnout generally is less uh, percentage-wise. Republicans turn out better uh, as a rule than than Democrats look, do. Let me look at one more figure and then move on. Uh, and that's this one. Uh, Kelly Leffler, Tia, uh, the poll suggests that 57% of voters don't know or don't have an answer to whether they feel favorably toward her or not. That shouldn't surprise us. She is, after all, a complete unknown in Georgia. Uh, but while it shouldn't surprise us, it does emphasize that Democrats have an opportunity, if they take advantage of it, to start defining her before she defines herself. Yes? Right. And the Democratic Party has been working hard to do that. I do want to, before I get into Leffler, just say, you know, I think life voters becomes more important in polling when we talk about who are you going to vote for. And that's not necessarily what this is. Well, that's true. Yeah. Thank you. Thank um, you for that. Mm-hmm. But back to Leffler. Um, you know, she is an unknown. And one thing that I found surprising in talking to the voters about this poll is that even though she is unknown and that is a vulnerability, for the most part, particularly conservative voters are saying, let's give her a chance. They're not necessarily saying, well, we know Trump wanted Doug Collins. We we don't trust Kelly Leffler. They're saying this is who the governor selected mm-hmm. and it was the governor's uh, prerogative to do so. Now let's give this um, new senator some time to prove herself. So I do think she has time. But again, the Democrats also see a vulnerability there. And they are going to try to, you know, it, it, it's a winner take all special election. So it's, there is no party primary. Mm-hmm. Um, and Democrats are going to work hard to get one of their people, you know, in the top two. Um, there's a still a lot, you know, it's still really, really early. Edward? Well, uh, three quick points. Uh, number one, you're right, uh, there's a large percentage of the population who doesn't know her, but she is still above water, uh, and I think that's significant, uh, by about five five percentage points. Uh, the second thing, it's 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 not a poll, but it's it's still, I think, extremely important that we need to remember here. Democrats are worried about Loeffler, as shown by the fact that they've yet to be able to get a, a what I call a first-tier Democrat uh, to step up and run against her. And we're now into election year two, two, 2020. Uh, and the third one is that 
we're dealing with the jungle primary, and so a lot of it is going to be dependent upon whether or not the Democrats can coalesce or whether or not they're going to have a, a multiple Democrats running in this jungle primary in November, which ought to go very much to the benefit of Senator Loeffler. Yeah, and also whether or not the Republicans are able to yeah. ensure that she doesn't have someone but, else but, running But I'm against beginning her. to think that probably will, and we, we raised yeah. this point earlier with Doug Collins. Keep in mind that, yes, uh, the president did pick Doug Collins to be one of his defenders on the, on the floor of the Senate, but also when he selected his campaign co-chair, honorary co-chairs, he put both Doug Collins and Senator Loeffler yes, on did. the list. All right, Brady, make a quick point here, please. I'll, I'll make a couple, couple of very, very quick points. First of all, if you've seen Leffler's ads that have come out recently, it's all about tying down the base. It's all about tying down the base. Yeah. Everything that Trump wants, you, she wants, and everything that he thinks is bad, she thinks is bad, and yeah. so forth, and she's going to give everybody a gun. The other thing... <laughs> The other thing, the other reductivist thing that, argument that, okay. from Buddy Darden. The other thing is there's a lot going on behind the scenes, Ed, and all of you know this, yeah, because know. the, DS, the uh, DSCC, the Democratic Senate Campaign Committee, is has weighed in, and there are about three or four very, very first-tier people who uh, want the blessing of the DSCC. And that will be a first-tier candidate. Oh, I have three or four of them sitting around. Yeah, oh, I know that. I'm just saying, I, I think it's interesting that we're now into mid-January. We still haven't All seen right. someone. That's uh, my speaking point. of Kelly Leffler, we've only got a couple minutes at most left. I think yesterday's MLK Day uh, service at uh, Ebenezer Baptist Church was really fascinating. For those of you who haven't had a chance to read about it yet, you can read a piece in the AJC about it. You had Kelly Leffler sitting up front there in Johnny Isaacson's place. Johnny Isaacson was very proud of the fact he never missed an MLK Day service, so she was there as well. But Edward Lindsay, the guy who gave the <laughs> Stemwinder sermon, was Raphael Warnock, who I think came closer yesterday to saying he was going to run for the United States Senate publicly. He's been talking about it privately, but I think we're probably looking at a Raphael Warnock race, and there was Leffler behind him, sitting right behind him. Well, you're right, <laughs> and, and it was a stem well. Stem winder. Thank you very much uh, for my speech impediment there. But it, it really was, and, and he has looked uh, at a couple of other uh, times. I think he looked at running against uh, Senator Isaacson in 2014 and perhaps uh, 2016, rather. So he's he's looked before, and and he would be, I think, you know, get back to first tier candidate. He would be a first tier candidate, uh, but still, uh, I think that the odds are still with Leffler. Right? All right. Well, you've got Mike Real, Thurman sitting over there yeah, in the Camp County. He, if Michael uh, Thurman, if Mike is going to be on the show next Friday, I think it's about time we say, <laughs> come on, yes or no? Right, exactly. Well, Mike's been waiting on on D, on DSC. You got Jen Jordan. Yeah. Uh, no, waiting, Jen's already. Waiting, I think no, Jen's already said Jordan's no. Jordan's already Jen's said she's, said she's well, not going to run today. All right. Yeah. Let me, I'm sorry, buddy, because you're so beloved. You get the last word. But I also have to cut you off because we're out of time. <laughs> Tia Mitchell, thank you for spending time with us on a very busy day. We look forward to seeing your reporting out of Washington. Buddy Darden, Amy Steigerwald, Edward Lindsay, thank you all for a really terrific conversation today. Uh, remember, we are now on the air, live at 9 o'clock in the morning, and we'll be throughout the impeachment trial since... That will cover up Political Rewind at 2 in the afternoon. And when the trial is over, you will have two opportunities to hear Political Rewind, 9 a.m. and in our old time slot of 2. Join us for as much of that as you can possibly stand. I'm Bill Nygut. See you tomorrow at 9. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.